0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this time, and we ask, Father, that you would open up our hearts that we might receive from you. I pray, Father, that if there's one here that doesn't know you, that they would be drawn to you by the power of your word today as your spirit works in and through their lives. Lord, for those who need strength and encouragement, I pray that you would do that through the power of your spirit today, and may the name of the Lord be praised as we worship you. It's true, everyone worships something. It's a great question. What are you worshiping today? You know, there's only one real pathway to Jesus, and we live in a, a culture today where many take aspects of what Jesus has said, parts of what Jesus said, and work it into their religion, whether it's Toll or Bren or any of these pop spiritual spiritualologists, so to speak, uh, self-made theologians that come up with little quotes from Jesus and kind of create their own Jesus. And it's very popular in our culture. It's very popular in our society to do so. Nothing wrong with Jesus. Let's just don't go with some of his claims. Let's just pick the pieces of Jesus that we want and that make us feel good and that work within our mind. Let's make up our own Jesus in our own mind is actually what occurs. And the Bible speaks of how in the last days people would do that. And the truth of it is, even in in Jesus's culture, one of the reasons that we have the four Gospels is so that people wouldn't just come up with their own rendition of Jesus, their own thoughts and their own philosophy about Jesus. Many times people will say, well, why actually are there four Gospels? Why did it? Basically uh, repeat a lot of the same message. Well, they were given from four different perspectives. As a matter of fact, we know that the Gospel of Matthew was written to Jews. And we see the Jewish prophecies. Matthew is writing this to say, this is the promised Messiah. This is the Christ. The one that has been prophesied. This is Him. In the Gospel of John, the, the one that was written probably last... John, who had been with Jesus, and comes out as a theologian. He starts at the beginning and he says, in the beginning was the Word. <clears throat> Jesus has preexistent, He's eternal. He was the Word. And the Word became flesh and He lived amongst us. And it was written during a time of great persecution where he said, I don't want you to have any doubt theologically about who Jesus was. And then the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, as we talked about Matthew, and then Luke. Luke, who was a Gentile, writing to Gentiles and writes the longest of the Gospels. And he also writes the book of Acts. What's interesting to me is there are a lot of uh, historians today who want to rewrite history, and they want to say, you know, those Gospels, they came later. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, Jacob Vici, one of the... Uh, one of the, the people who were in the background and supplying a lot of the information for the Da Vinci Code said, you know, those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, those came, those were probably written in 200, 300 A.D., a long time after Jesus. We've got some other gospels over here that probably are more credible. For some reason, the church has chose to just not go with those. We're not really sure what, why they did that other than to manipulate people. But the truth of it is, he, he's historically wrong. We know that the book of Acts was written before the before 70 AD and we know that Matthew Mark and Luke are all written before the book of Acts. Okay, Luke, the author there, he wrote that before the book of Acts. And what we know about the book of Acts is it's a it's a story, it's a testament, it's a historical document of the early church and how it evolved and how it all transpired. And we know it must have been written by before 70 AD. We've got four good reasons. And by the way, Mark, we know is the first of the Gospels. And it's probably written somewhere between 20 and 30 years after the death of Jesus. At that point, people had probably documented some things, but they could orally talk about it because there were so many hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people who had seen Jesus, who had experienced Jesus, who had seen him go to the cross, who had heard his teachings, and they could collaborate with one another. But we know even the book of Luke, and we know that even the book of Acts, which comes after the book was written earlier than 70 A.D. Why do we know that? Well, let me give you four good reasons. Number one reason that we know that is because of this. Because the Roman War is not even mentioned. We don't even hear anything about the Roman War. What war was that? Well, in 70 A.D., Titus comes through and he completely destroys Jerusalem. It's gone. Don't you think that that probably would have been mentioned in early church history? And if you want to go to step two, the temple was destroyed. The temple for the Jews? That's where we go to worship. That's where we get our sins forgiven. That's where Yom Kippur, the holy day, occurs, and that's where the sacrifice is made. If that's not there, that's huge. That's bigger than Washington, DC getting wiped off of the map. You don't think that one of the gospel writers, certainly Paul in the book of Acts as he writes, a history of the church, would not say, Well, and of course what happened to the temple? It doesn't even it's not even mentioned. You don't think, and I mean, we even our history books, we mention 9-11, don't we? This is bigger than 9-11. We're talking about the whole city being gone. The whole capital city, the temple and everything being destroyed. What about the martyrdoms of Paul and Peter? Why would you not mention that unless it happened after 70 AD? Why would you not mention that? We've got Peter... Who is arguably uh, the the most important leader of the church, and then Paul who comes along and writes more of the New Testament, more books of the New Testament than anybody. Now, Luke wrote more in sure volume, but we've got arguably the two strongest presents of the early church, Peter and Paul, and they're not even their deaths aren't even mentioned. But the death of Stephen, who was a deacon, is mentioned. The death of James is mentioned. And then, of course, early Christian writers. Affirm this happened, that the dates are early. So when you hear these, you know, bogus claims that all oh, the gospels, they were written hundreds of years after Jesus, they just kind of went back and remade that. That's not true. We can, with good confidence, say, you know what? The very first of the gospels that we will be studying for the next while, Matthew was probably written 20 to 30 years afterwards. And what's interesting about that is up to that point, Yes, there were probably some documentations, but there wasn't a big need for a gospel account. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, probably about 15 years after the death of Christ, he says, look, there were over 500 people who saw Jesus after his death, after his resurrection. They saw him. If you don't believe me, go ask him. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So there were a lot of people there. Most of the disciples were alive. The church leaders were alive. The people who had been healed, they were alive. But then about 25, 30 years after Jesus, they start to die off. And God, in His divine sovereignty, enables these guys to write the Gospels so that we'd have them, so that we wouldn't have a distorted view. That's what Luke says as he's addressing Theopolis. He said, so that you would have an accurate account. And so we start here with the first of the books. The first one that's recorded. The Gospel of Mark. This is a great piece for apologetics. That Jesus is who he claimed to be. We can trust the reliability of the gospel because they were written early. They were written by eyewitness accounts or they recorded the information from eyewitness accounts. We know that, as we said, um, Matthew was right there with Jesus. John was with, was with Jesus. Uh, Mark and Luke both traveled extensively with Paul and Peter. And we know that they recorded for Peter. So we have some accurate accounts of what occurred. Now, let's begin reading here uh, as the Bible tells us who Jesus is, the real path to Jesus. Right here in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. Unlike Luke and unlike uh, Matthew, who start with the genealogies and start making the history and building the account. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let's go back and let's look at this historically. Let's make sure that he matches up. Mark just jumps right in. He said, I'm just going to get right to the point. Let's begin. Let's talk about Jesus as he starts his ministry here. And we see the claims that he's going to make about Jesus here. He says, the gospel. First word that, that gospel in the Greek means evangelion. And what that was, that was a term that was used uh, after a war, when a messenger would be sent back to the king or back to the city and said, here's the message, here's the good news, we won! It's good news! The battle has been won. That same word is used right here, the gospel. I want to give you an account of the story. I want to give you an account of what happened, of the victory, of the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, that word Jesus, Yeshua, means one who saves, but he calls him the Christ. Now, in our culture today, we just think it's his last name, Jesus Christ. Okay? But it's really not his last name. It's a title. It means anointed one. Okay? It was the one that the Jews had prophesied about. The anointed one would come. The anointed, literally the king. The anointed king who would come. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping for. And that's what they had interpreted, that the anointed king would come. And Mark is saying, it's Jesus Christ, the Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. And then he says, the son of God, not just a a son of God, but the, the definite article is used here, the son of God. So right up front, Mark hits you with these claims. And then he quotes the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah for most Jews, which would have been the most important book of the Old Testament for many, or at least in the prophets uh, for most Jews. And he says, it is written by Isaiah, and this is 300 years earlier that Isaiah makes this prophecy. You can find it in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, and, will vo- and he will be a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for him. You know, what's interesting here uh, is a couple of things. First of all, it, it, it makes me think, you know, he's making a reference to John the Baptist, which is also made in Malachi. You know, it, it makes me think of, of what's going on right now. How many of you are familiar with Lin Sanity? Raise your hand, Lin Sanity. Okay, mainly men who read the sports page, um, Lin Sanity. But you see, it's on the cover of New York Times. Uh, uh, you also was on the cover of Time Magazine. Uh, I mean, it's everywhere. Okay, and. um What's interesting is that Jeremy Lin uh, is a, a guy, a young guy who grew up in California uh, in high school and uh, played basketball there, did did very well, but uh, he wasn't a very tall guy, uh, and he uh, played ball there, and when he got ready, he had done real well, but no one recruited him. He really wanted to go to Stanford, which was right across the street. He had great grades, had done very well academically, had a 4.2 grade point average but no one wanted to recruit him on the west coast. No one would give him a scholarship. So he decided to roll and enroll in Harvard. He got accepted to Harvard. And who wouldn't want to go there? He, and he uh, accepts his invitation to Harvard. And um and then he, he plays basketball there. He walks on and plays basketball there. Doesn't have a, a, matter of fact, they don't even give, um athletic scholarships. But he gets an academic scholarship to Harvard. Begins to play there. Does very well. And uh, at the conclusion of his time there, and incidentally, he's a strong believer, by the way, at Harvard and led a Bible study there. But at the conclusion of his time there, uh, again, he doesn't get drafted. No one gave him scholarship in high school. No one gives him a scholarship, or excuse me, a, a pro offer. But he does have Golden State, who back in his hometown says, why don't you come in and do a little tryout? He does a tryout. They sign him. Uh, they send him back to D League, which is kind of the development league, and they bounce him back and forth uh, over the year. And then they finally cut him. Then uh, the Rockets pick him up at the beginning of this season. Then at preseason, they cut him. And New York Knicks, they've had three guards go down, and so they need to sign somebody. So they sign him, and the uh, and the coach was even saying, we probably would have cut him if one of our guys would have gotten better sooner. But finally, we decided he's has the last game. I don't think I'm going to be, I'm going to probably, he's probably not going to be on the team much longer. We're down to where we don't hardly have any guards. The guard that I'm using now is not working for point guard. And so he inserted him in, and he did great. He did a great job. And matter of fact, he starts the next seven games and he wins over and over and over again. And and, and matter of fact, it's the game before Los Angeles. They've won five or six straight. They're gonna play the Lakers. They, they interviewed Kobe Bryant. What do you think about this Jeremy Lynn? I never even heard of him. Don't know him, not worried about him. He scores thirty points on thirty eight points on Kobe. You know who he is now. And um and, and win and they win the game. Okay, and so there's this Lynn Sanity, okay? He's getting like three million hits a day. I mean, it's done tremendous revenue for their uh, for the New York Knicks. They've got one-third of the Asian market in China now watching these games. I mean, it's huge. It's worldwide. It's Sanity. okay? That's what they're, they're calling it. But what's interesting, here's a guy that nobody really knew who he was. And there was one particular guy back in 2010 called Ed Whelan who said, hey, look, I think this guy's going to be a star in the NBA. Nobody else said that. And who's this guy? This guy's a truck driver, okay? And he's got up this little system, the way he evaluates people. And he says, this guy's going to be a star one day. Nobody listened to him. I thought he was a nut. And now they're listening to him, okay? Kind of reminds me of John the Baptist. There's this nut out in the desert. And the Bible tells us he's wearing camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey, saying, hey, the Christ is coming. And everybody's going, he's a nut. (laughs) Most people are thinking, this guy is a nut, all right? That's probably what most of them were thinking. But there was something compelling about the message that he's giving. And many people are coming as we continue here. And what's interesting, he says, he's going to the desert. And he says, a voice of one calling in the desert that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 4, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, again, in the English language, we look at that and go, okay, big deal. Prepare the way for the Lord. Well, if you were a Jew, that'd be a big deal to you. Because you know what? He just quoted Isaiah forty. And the word that's used there is the word for God, the holy name of Yahweh. Now, the Jews thought so much of that name that they wouldn't speak forth the name Yahweh, the name of God. They wouldn't speak it because of the holiness that they thought it uh, possessed. And they didn't want in any way to defame it. So they'd use the word Adonai. And that word is used there often for Yahweh. It's the word they'd use instead of saying the word Yahweh. And he's saying, look, prepare the way of God, of Yahweh, of Adonai, the Holy. It's a huge claim. And if you're a Jew, you're going, he ought to be right or that's blasphemy. That claim that Isaiah made, he just right there dispelled any question about who he might be. It's a game changing statement. He said, make pat way, the path straight for him. Prepare the path for him. You know, in that in that day, when a king or an emperor or Caesar would come, you would prepare your road, your highway that led into the city. And typically, that wasn't a big deal because people would just travel, and it'd be kind of a trodden trail, and there'd be rocks in it, and there may be things there, but you just didn't worry; you just walk around. when the king was come, everybody was called upon. All the people were called upon to clear the path and to present, basically, in our modern words, a a kind of an ancient highway where it cleared path for the king to come in. And What it meant for the people is a lot of work. Matter of fact, some of them as slaves. Okay, for the next couple of months, this is what you've got to do. You've got to make this path clear, get all the rocks out, get all the grass cleared out. If there's a tree or whatever, we're going to get all this removed where there's a, a beautiful, straight, and clean and clear path that leads to our city. And for many people, though, it's oh, great, the king's coming. That's two weeks out of the field or that's two months out of my business. It wasn't a term that typically excited people until that day. But for Jesus, the word that's used there in the Greek is hodos. Okay, hodos. That path, and every time we'll see it in the gospel after this, you know where it's a path? It's not a path for the king to the throne. It's a path to the king to the cross. The path to the cross, the via Dolorosa. Every time we'll see the word used, and it will be used about 15 more times, It is speaking about the road to the cross. This is a king that is headed to the cross. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. You know, something else that's really unique and interesting about this is is many of the people in the countryside, many of the people who had been on the outside of the religion, so to speak, the outside of the city, they've heard about this guy John, who's claiming that the Christ has come. And you need to prepare yourself. You need to prepare your heart, just like you would prepare the road for the king. You need to prepare yourself. So you need to repent and come and and prepare yourself. And so he's practicing this repentance and confession and baptism. Well, People have been baptizing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jews had been uh, practicing the, the art of baptism for probably well over a thousand years at this point. That's been happening a lot. That's, that's not a big deal. Why is it significant? Well, I'll tell you this. Number one, when people would baptize themselves up to this point, that's exactly what they do. They'd baptize themselves. They'd make themselves ritually clean before they'd go to the temple, before they'd go and worship. If you were a really good Jew and you'd kept most of the laws, you'd just wash your hands. And kind of symbolically cleanse yourself. Or if you had become, uh, so to speak, unclean, then you would wash your whole self. And if you were a Gentile, you had to wash your whole body. You had to get in and immerse yourself because you were a Gentile and you were extra dirty. Okay? And if you were converting to, to Judaism. But what's interesting is you always baptized yourself. You either immersed or sprinkled or effused or poured the water upon yourself and made yourself ready. But now you're having to go to another to be baptized. You can't do it on your own. John is baptizing. He's saying, prepare your hearts, confess your sin, repent and come and be baptized. Prepare yourself. And then we see the information about John that's listed here. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He's the truck driver who predicted Jeremy Land. I mean, he's the wild man out in the wild. Nobody knew who he was, but he's preaching this message with a passion. And he's preaching a message of hope. And he's saying that the prophecies are about to be fulfilled. And again, this was the message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. If you were a good Jew, you didn't do that anyway. You never knelt down and touched someone else's feet. But John is saying, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. I'm baptizing you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Your sins will be forgiven once and for all. You will experience the very presence of God within you. Salvation will come through him. So, as we look at this piece as apologetics, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us who he is, as we talked about, he's Jesus. He's the Christ. He says, I am the Son of God. We see these claims made, and we see that He will give this news here and later on in this chapter, and then later on He will make the claim in uh, Mark fifteen. Uh, in Mark, excuse me, 14 verses 61 62 before Pilate, that he is the Christ, that he is the one. We see it in John, where he, in 14, uh, excuse me, in John 14 6 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me. He makes these claims, and he says, it's through me, and I'm going to give it to you by grace. You know, other religions, there, there's a system of works that you go through, and, You know, in uh, Buddhism, there's the eightfold path. And in Islam, there are the five pillars. And in Judaism, it's keeping the laws and the commandments. But in Christianity, it's coming through Christ. It's accepting what He has done for you and placing your faith and trust in Him. And how do we do that? Well, He gives it to us here. First of all, it's by confessing our sins. Recognizing that I need you, Jesus. I need forgiveness. I confess that I am a sinner in need. I repent of that. I'm willing to turn away and I'm willing to believe and to place my trust in you. And that's what baptism is. Once we've trusted Christ, it's that picture of our acceptance of the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Christ. What about you this morning? Have you chose to believe him? C.S. Lewis says, it is in the process of of being worshipped, that God communicates His presence to me. Have you come to that place to where you're willing to worship Him? Well, what was His purpose? We know the Bible says, Jesus said, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to take the road to the cross. The road to the cross. He was a king. He was the anointed one. And he was not headed to a throne, but to a cross, the King's Cross. Now, what does that mean to you? You know, I have my friends here today, the Jones family, who, when they hear the word King's Cross, what do they think? They think of a neighborhood in London, and there's a train station over there. That's what you think. In America, what do we think of when we hear King's Cross? Go ahead and say it. Harry Potter. That's what you think of. All right, if you have kids, you think of Harry Potter. That's what you think of, okay? You think of where Harry Potter catches the train to Hogsworth, all right? And let me see, does anybody know what platform he's on? What is it? Somebody call it out. Nine and three quarters. You're close. I'm shame, shame. You're from London. Uh, nine and three quarters. Nine and three quarters he catches it. That's what our mentality is today when we think of King's Cross. But Jesus was the king who purposefully was headed to the cross to humble himself and to die. So that we might know forgiveness as we confess and repent and place our trust in him. He took the punishment for our sins. There's no other name by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. The king who made way, made prepared the way for us to come into the kingdom by an act of grace and love and forgiveness. So we have to make the choice. What will we do with this Christ, this Son of God, this one that claims to be the King of kings and Lord of lords? John Stott, the great uh, English theologian who died this past July, uh, well, remarkably educated at Cambridge, uh, had four different degrees there and a, a Ph.D. and studied multiple times, named one of the top 100 Christian leaders of our time, uh, wrote several books, wrote over 100 books. And a matter of fact, one of the top 50 uh, Christian books of history written was called Basic Christianity. We have some out there if you'd like to pick up one. Uh, But John Stott said this. He said, you know what? Anytime anyone ever encountered Jesus, they always had a pretty significant response. I mean, they always had a... uh, there was an extreme response that they made to him. Many, the religious leaders, they wanted to kill him. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's get this guy. He is tremendously offensive. He's making claims to be God, and it just made him mad. And if you really experience Jesus, even today, you'll have one of these three responses. But in that day, you wanted to get rid of him. That offends me. I don't want to hear about it. I want him to go away. Or people would just try to get away from him. They would just leave they would say, I don't want to hear it. I've got my mind made up. I know what I believe. and know what I think. And this doesn't fit my paradigm. And I just want, I don't want to hear it. Just get away from it. It scares me when you start talking like that. People still have that response. Or the third one he said. Or you kneel down and you worship him and you recognize. He is the Christ. The Son of God. The one who takes away the sin of the world. Much like C.S. Lewis said, you've got to make that decision. He's either a liar a lunatic, or he's Lord. What are you going to choose today? Well, I'm telling you, first of all, that you can, you can trust the reliability of the Scriptures because of the reasons that we listed earlier. And number two, that there is good news for you today. That you don't have to earn it. You don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to enter some pathway that you've made up or someone else has made up, but that you can go by the words of Jesus and receive the grace and forgiveness that he's provided for you by saying, Lord, I confess, I repent, and I believe, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You know, many of you might have missed Lynn Sanity. You might have missed that whole deal because they just lost a game the other night. And uh so, you know, it'll start to die down a little bit. Any of you may have missed it. Big deal. But let me tell you this. Don't miss real Christianity. I'm not talking about manufactured, what some people make it, but I'm talking about Jesus. Believing that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and receiving Him and His grace and forgiveness. Have you done that? I want to ask you to make that decision today, the most important decision of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that while we were still sinners, You died for us. Lord, I thank You that You made a path. You cleared a road for us by You going to the cross. Not that we would have to earn it or deserve it or work our way into it, but that by simply recognizing we need it and we need forgiveness, that if we would believe and transfer our trust to what You've done, You would apply to our account forgiveness and grace salvation would be granted. Lord, if there's one here today that's never really received, I pray, God, that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, that we would not go with some Jesus we formulate in our minds, some God that we make up, that makes us feel better, that seems logical, and works within the confines of our imagination. But, Lord, we would recognize there's something bigger than what we can come up with our little finite brains. And that, Lord, that bigness was... God came to earth in the form of a man lived a perfect life and died upon a cross so that we might know forgiveness by believing and receiving. That's not a plan that any of us would have come up with. But that's one of the ways we know it is you because it's beyond the scope of our imagination. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have come and done and what you have provided.